Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Richard Ford i samtal med Hans-Olav Bränner, NRK. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sargelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Welcome to, to Sweden. I know that you've been here for several days. Happy happy days. Yeah. Happy wet days. <laughs> I have heard you say before that crossing a border um, gives you certain feelings. Yeah. How was it to to enter Sweden, to to come into the Scandinavian mentality? You know, I was reading something the the, the other day, and I'm I can't remember who it was. It says. Anybody who ends in an international airport doesn't know anything about the country that he's in. And so it, it's, it's, to, to enter Orlando, which is a wonderful airport, is just like entering Schiphol, it's just like entering Dublin, it's just like entering JFK. You don't get a sense of where you are at all. I mean, it's, um, so it, there isn't a sense, and it's, it's one of the things that's, that's, that air travel has occasioned. It occasions our not feeling exactly that we've crossed the border. It was one of those things that we've lost. And, and, and the EU is, is to some extent doing the, doing the same thing. Uh, but I can remember when I was a little boy in Mississippi that we would go across the Mississippi River uh, into Arkansas, where It's just the next state to the west. And I could feel this kind of flutter, flutter in my chest just from crossing that border. So, and, and that, you know, happens to me whenever I can really demark a, a border. I, I get a feeling of something precipice-like, of nearing a precipice. And um, my, 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 my pulse increases, which, which is really why I, I, one of the reasons in a way that I wrote Canada, because every time I go across the border from the United States into the Dominion of Canada, I feel that commotion happen in me, because it's, it's, it's a real, even though it's not a visible border, it's just the 49th parallel, um, it's a demarked border. Mm. Commotion was the word you used. Commotion, yeah. It's a, it's a word of Catherine Ann Porter's, and, 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 and what she meant by that was um, that, it, that that feeling of commotion turns out to be the inspiration that, that, that you feel when you want to write something. Um, Neruda called it something kicking in his soul. Um, and, and, and it can be occasioned by all kinds of things. So, so what we have here, Canada is a, is a big epic novel, but it starts with something pretty small, with something quite emotional. Then. Yes, yeah. Um, it's funny, I never thought of it as a big epic novel. I just, just thought of it as the book I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's, it starts with uh, um, a family coming apart because the parents fall into terrible debt and, um, and very um, stupidly rob a bank, mm. which causes their whole family life to explode. Mm. Yeah. No wonder. No wonder, right? If you, uh, it, it was... It was it <laughs> 
it, there, there, there's no good reason to rob a bank. If anybody in this room is thinking about robbing a bank, don't. don't. <laughs> because when I, was, when I was thinking about writing about robbing a bank, something I had up until then never done, um, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking that, that there is no good reason to do it. Yeah. And yet, people do it all the time. So it was a kind of a blunder that is so common. I don't know if it's common in Sweden. It was, it's common in America. During the financial crisis in the last tw uh, 10 years in, in the United States, many, many banks were robbed. Mm. My father went to teaching school with a, with a nice guy, and it turned out afterwards that he had robbed 19 banks during <laughs> their years together at, uh, at that college. And he, he, it was an unofficial Norwegian record at the time. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's still a, a nice guy. Uh, he has a cafe in the, in, the, in the town that the Norwegian painter Edvard Munch uh, lived for many years, Oskarstrand, and he's doing very well. So one could recover, of course. But yeah. for most people, it's quite an, a spectacular happening. Well, that's probably a better novel than my novel. Um, <laughs> you know, about how you recover from robbing a bank. <laughs> the long view. Now, that is an epic novel. <laughs> but the start has become very famous, actually. You have read it very many times, and I, I won't force you to, to, to do it I don't it mind. Again. I'll read it again. You will? Oh, okay. hell yes. I mean, I... Yeah. I'm really happy about that beginning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, I mean, I don't want to inflict it on you, but I'm, I can still make mistakes reading it, so I have to get out my glasses. First, I'll tell about the robbery our parents committed, then about the murders, which happened later. The robbery is the more important part since it served to set my and my sister's lives on the courses they eventually followed. Nothing would make complete sense without that being told first. Our parents were the least likely two people in the world to rob a bank. They weren't strange people, not obviously criminals. No one would have thought they were destined to end up the way they did. They were just regular. Although, of course, that kind of thinking became null and void the moment they did rob a bank. I, I, null and void. Null and void, yeah. yeah. All those, uh, and then that's what happens in the book, that uh, all of their normalcy, all of their regularness, all of their familial integrity becomes null and void mm. by one simple act. And, that, that, and we started you mentioning borders when we were first sitting here. Um, that's another kind of border the, the border that people cross from normalcy into some, some kind of felonious eccentricity, mm. which is what robbing a bank is. Mm. Um, and then once you cross that border, and you can feel that sense of commotion in these characters when they get close to it. They get exhilarated about it, even though they know it's stupid. Um, and that once you cross that border, then there's no, there's no real going back. Mm -hmm. So you're, that's why I think your, your story is a better story than mine, because he, he goes across the border, ventures into that eccentricity, but manages somehow to have some kind of more redemptive story. Mm. But is that some kind of human experience you have? That it is a very thin line between what's normal and what's totally not normal? No. I, I actually don't think in, in, in regular behavior that that is true. Um, um, and that, and that, 
that, that's an interesting question because I think you're probably skeptical about it yourself. I sense that you are. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. I, um, but n novels... Um, The, the notion that what separates one kind of behavior from another kind of behavior is a border is a sort of a provisional construction of this book. The book wants to say that there are such things as borders, and then once you venture across one, then you can't go back. It can be also the border between adolescence and adulthood. It can be all kinds of borders, so that the, the, the figure of speech that is a border is, is the figure of speech that this novel provisionally uses. And, and, once, once it tr and, and it uses it to try to point out something about human behavior. Mm. And it wants to point out these things about human behavior so that individuals will pay more attention to their behavior. Mm. So, I mean, most novels are trying to point to the world and say to the reader, pay attention, pay attention, this stuff really counts. And so, but then once you read the book, you can say to yourself, well, hell, I don't really know if there are such things as borders. But for, the, but for purposes of this book and for the duration of the book, yes, there are. Mm. I have heard you use the, the expression uh, moral interest, um, which interested me. Is this some kind of a, of, of a quest for you to, to find out something of moral interest? Yes, always. Um, and by moral interest, I don't mean finger-wagging. I don't mean moralizing. Um, book, books, books take the reader from their pages back to life, in a way, by, by being full of references to life. And, and, and the moral consequence of that is that it affirms life. And it affirms life by saying, you know, this everyday existence that I'm writing about and that you're living is actually quite important. Mm. And in that life, you can make horrible mistakes. You can have great loves. You can have great tragedies and great triumphs. But, but you must understand that, 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 at least for me, I'm not a Christian, life is what there is and bears, bears your attention. Mm. So that's for me... That's, that's the moral good. That's the moral address of a piece of fiction, which is to say it points to life in a way as to say life is important and worth your notice. Mm. Um, the start of this book um, would, of course, make Agatha Christie turn in her grave because you kind of give away the information about uh, who did it and, and, and what, what they did. But it has this interesting existential side. And it gives you a task also, maybe, as a novelist. You, 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 mu you must live up to such a good mm -hmm. start. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, be careful how you start your novel. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine to write those two paragraphs, but then you have to write the next one, too. <laughs> um, I thought... I mean, I thought it was a good opening, and I thought it kind of threw down the gauntlet for me that said, okay, what are you worth? Can you follow up those two good paragraphs with, you know, 2,000 more? Uh, but I also thought it was a kind of a narrative hook in a kind of old-fashioned way. You know, someplace along here, they're going to have a bank robbery, and somewhere along here, some people are going to get murdered. That's the kind of stuff that makes Raymond Chandler a really interesting writer. Hmm. But it also um, 
as, as I think you, you imply, it, it opens up some space for me to operate um, other kinds of engines, the family, the relationship between the brother and the sister, um, all of those things operate under the sort of shelter of those bigger events and let me kind of mine out the minutia, which I care about a lot. Mm. Yeah. And you make the family um, a pretty uh, isolated unit. Yes. The, the mother, uh, Neva, uh, she, well, they travel from place to place and she doesn't want them to integrate too much in the Great Falls, Montana society. Uh, the What does she say? The the market-based uh, yeah. supermarket-like society. So, so, so they're so isolated, and that makes the, the functioning between them very interesting as well, of course. Yeah, and that, I think that may just be my point of view. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm always innately pulled toward those kinds of isolate family units. Um, my own family unit, my mother, my father, and me were quite isolated where we lived in Mississippi for perfectly normal reasons. Um, um, maybe that's just something that interests me as a little petri dish for morality, really. If I can get this little family in this little isolated place, I can really pour in on it and mm. explore it and think about it and write about it. Um, do you refer to you being an only child? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which these children were not mm. in this book. They're twins, sister and sister and brother. I also think um, that a first person narration, which this is, talking about one's family, a small family, is going to create more of a, a, the impression of isolation. Um, than another way of narrating that story. I mean, you, you, it is only one boy's point of view, and it's about a limited number of people. The effect is going to be to concentrate and to somewhat to, to, to isolate, because it can only be about the things that he actually experiences and sees and can tell. Mm. So it's part of the, part of the consequence of the, of the narrative mode decision. Yeah, and it's very interesting uh, how you tell the story because part one um, is told by by a m much older edition of the same person, so to speak. Yeah, he's sixty five or sixty six when he when it tells the story about the circumstances about uh, the robbery and what happened afterwards. Um, but still, we're we're kind of having the the point of view of the of the young boy still Absolutely. because of his detailed memory. Um, he bases what he tells about the circumstances on some notes from his mother and some newspaper clips, but still he's he, he's there in a way yes. with, with very minutious uh, detail. Yes. So so how have you been thinking when you, when you tried to shape those different levels? Well, very freely, um, in, in in this way, as you say, this is a story that's told literally by a man uh, in the contemporary moment when he's 60, leaving, retiring from his job at late 60s, about a time 50 years prior when he was 15, going on 16. And, and so uh, 
I had to figure out a way to have both of those intelligences at work at the same time so that when I needed to be able to rely on the older man's intelligence, I could just do it. Mm. And when I needed to concentrate on the intelligence of the 15-year-old boy, I could just do it. Mm. Well, first of all, novels do that all the time. That I'm, I did not invent this particular wheel. <laughs> um, and the reason they can do it because we can't do it, except through our memories. Fiction is artifice. I, I, I can lean on you to believe in something that is not literally possible as long as I pay off, as long as, as, long as that artifice that I create, which is that you can have a 15-year-old boy and a 66-year-old man talking to you at the same time, as long as I'm telling you something interesting, talking about whatever I want to talk about, then the reader will say, yes, 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 I, I know I'm being leaned on, I, I know I'm being told things that are improbable or implausible, but I'm liking this so much that I'm not going to stop. Hmm. And, and, and so that was, that was what I understood I had to do. I, if, if, I also think that there's kind of a, uh, and, and this is something that, that I believe and you may not, um, I, I think that when you are being leaned on by a novel, when you are being asked to believe something which you may find somewhat implausible and yet find yourself going along with it, that there's pleasure involved in that. I think readers like to submit. I think readers like to give in to some machination in a novel, irrespective of it being plausible or or not plausible, and so, so I, I thought I had that going for me, that I, that I could try to please um, with what I wrote. And you try to please by good word choices, you try to please by having interesting things happen, you try to please by having the book be about the most important thing you know. Mm. Mm. And how do you, <laughs> that, that's quite, uh, quite an ambition. Well, that's, you know, Cyril Connolly said the only function of a writer is to write a masterpiece. <laughs> and that has always been my only attempt. <laughs> I've never written a book that I didn't want to be a masterpiece. The world can tell me if, how I did, and the world does often tell me how I did, but it's never blunted my aspiration to write a masterpiece. Mm. Yeah. But this is a mixed picture then, because you... You you told me before that that um, it's a regular guy yeah. writing the books. Yes, it's a regular me. Yeah. Well, I am a very as anybody knows me will, will tell you that I'm a very regular guy, not particularly well educated. Um, um, come from parents who didn't read books. Uh, went to an ordinary university in in in, in the United States. Um, I work real hard. But there is something about the engagement with an active imagination that will allow you, if you, are, if you are fully committed, to be smarter than you are. That um, to write about those things, as I said, those things that are the most important things in the world that you know, will elevate you. And somehow that, that, that happens. And, and I think it's true. I, I think it's true. So, so that wonderful novels can often be written by regular people. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm I'm one of those regular people, and I would write a wonderful novel if I could. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever discouraged me when I was young, and, and I wanted to try to be a writer. Christina and I uh, sort of set off on this particular mission together, and she was extremely enthusiastic, with absolutely no reason to be. Uh, but nobody ever said, "Don't do that." Mm. You know, nobody ever said, "You're not smart enough to write a great novel." You're not educated enough to write a great novel. I was a reader. I knew what great novels were. Mm. I grew up across the street from Eudora Welty. And I uh, uh, met William Faulkner when I was 17 years old. I knew what that was. Mm. What was that like then? Well, to, to meet Faulkner was to, to meet Faulkner was rather funny because he was a tiny little man um, and quite drunk when I when I met him. But Eudora was a whole other matter. I, I don't know if Eudora Welty's work is, is widely read in, um, in, in Sweden or in Scandinavia. Probably in Sweden. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> But not necessarily in Norway. No. <laughs> no, Norwegians have a very strong tendency to, to love Norwegian literature. For I see. Yeah. Actually. Well, you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Eudora um, was from Jackson, Mississippi, like I was, and um, was 35 years older than I was and went to the same school as I went to and had the same teachers. And, um, and she was one of the m- mammoth short story writers of the 20th century. And uh, she lived a 10-minute walk from my house. And um, ultimately, ultimately, I met her, and she became quite, quite a good friend to, to me and a supporter and an advocate and a friend to Christina, too. And... Um, And I, I don't think I learned anything from her specifically, other than great aspiration can sometimes, you know, bear wonderful fruit. But in Mississippi, which was a very culturally difficult place, racist and bigoted, and not a happy place when I grew up there, here was Eudora Welty writing these wonderful stories. And what it meant was that there was literature in the air. Mm. And there was a license that was available to anybody to become a writer if you wanted to, because right over there, who was this lady who was doing it? And it meant a lot. Mm. And even if I couldn't have said at the time that I felt that license given to me, it was given to me nonetheless, by her and by Faulkner and by Walker Percy and by all these great writers, these great American writers who lived in the South. Mm. She clearly um, read the sports writer and, and, and your later novels. Did you ever got to know whether she read the first novels of yours? <laughs> I, I, well, what, um, I think she did it, and I'm not even sure she read the others. Uh, She said she read the others, but she was very polite. Uh, The first novel I wrote, A Piece of My Heart, which was published in Sweden, um, I sent to her because I just felt it was my obligation to send it to her. And nothing ever was answered. And it was kind of a grainy, sort of coarse novel and had sex in it and profanity and things that I generally trade in in on the page. And... um, i thought, well, I've just this just offended her, and she just doesn't want to say anything to me about it. So I got over that, and um, then I sent her the next novel I wrote, which was also about drugs and sex and 
uh, nothing came back. And then, and then when I wrote the sports writer, um, I was in Jackson and I um, was doing a book signing at a local bookstore and I was behind my little table. And um, I looked up and there was Eudora, whom, whom I had met once or twice, but didn't really know. And she had, she had quite a deep voice, very mirthful woman. She said, well, she said, I just had to come pay my respects. So that was, that was when I thought, okay, 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 this works. <laughs> but just having the figure there, even though you didn't meet her, that was meaningful. But yeah. is that to say that you had a wish to become a writer from, from early on? No, I didn't want to become a writer until I basically had failed at everything else un un enough that I didn't know, that I felt a kind of existential freedom. Um, I'd, I'd been in the Marine Corps and failed at that. I'd been to law school, made myself fail at that. Uh, I, I just hadn't, just hadn't caught on. And and so uh, in 1968, um, I said to Christina one day, I said, uh, I think I'm going to try to be a writer. I, I could have just as easily have said, I think I'm going to try to be a plumber. <laughs> or, or I think I'm going to try to be an airplane pilot or a flight attendant or something like that. And as I said before, she said, oh, good. She said, let's do that. That's a really good idea. She said, uh, uh, I'll get a job and work, and you just stay home and write books. <laughs> Believe me, you didn't have to say that to me twice. So that's what we did. I had at that time written two stories. Uh, that's all. But I thought, well, uh, you know, I, I thought being a writer was a great thing. Th that not that writers were great people, necessarily, as we all know, some are, some aren't. But I thought great literature was, was, was worth your life. And, and since my life hadn't been giving me very much uh, vocationally, uh, I had a job at a bank, which I didn't want. I just said, hell, I'll just do that. Just do that. You know. It, it, it's, it's, in some ways, it's a very inspiring story. In some ways, it's a very boring story. Mm. Um, speaking of Christina, almost every book is dedicated to her. Everyone. I didn't find it in the, in the Norwegian edition of Multitude of Sins. Uh, well, that says more about Norway than it says about <laughs> Richard Ford. Uh, <laughs> no, I haven't missed a one. I haven't missed a one, and I won't be missing any. Mm. Yeah. Well, she just um, uh, she just took a took a risk with me. Married married me in 1968 when we didn't, as they say in America, have a pot to piss in, and um, and there it was. She just thought it was a good idea, and so did I. And I, I was so crazy about her. I was I was terribly afraid somebody was going to steal her away from me. So we got married in a kind of a rush. <laughs> and are you taking it for granted, or are you still a little afraid of her being taken away? I'm still afraid of that. Uh, of course, of course, you, you, yes. Every, everybody who uh, is crazy about his wife, deeply loves his wife, is constantly fearful that somebody's going to haul her away. And I'm sure that's true. If you're not, you should be. Mm. But uh, by the end, yeah. it's healthy. Yeah. <laughs> but by the end of the the book Canada, you 
you thank her quite specifically for for helping you finish the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. uh, and that that's quite a process, isn't it? When it's you, horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, it, it's horrible because at the end, you have to get all the words in the right places. And um, I'm I'm dyslexic, and I have a really hard time getting words to stay still, and I have a hard time um, not changing words. If if I, it's, it's kind of a miracle that I read those two paragraphs to you, pretty much verbatim off the page, because my natural habit is for one word to substitute for another word, and um, without my awareness of it, and um, and so she. She helps me get all the words in the right places and uh, reads the book a lot and uh, tells me at the very end. Uh, I, I find that to be the most un- unpleasing part of writing books. Sitting in your room with a pen and with the things that you want to write in front of you, that's really quite pleasurable. But when you get down to the end and you know that, that this is the end and the world now is going to have this book and you won't have any opportunities to make any other changes in it or make it better in any way, um, Boy, that's that feels like a, a a lot of responsibility, and she shares that responsibility with me. That's good. It is. It's, it's life saving. It's life saving. Believe me. We just did it. We just did it in June with the with with the, the new book of stories. Um, um, we just finished it in June. Yeah. Mm. Dorothea is going to publish it in November, mm. and. Um, Fresh off the fresh off my desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because every ten years, more or less, you you write a book uh, about Frank Pascombe. Yeah, you've done so since nineteen since eighty six. Eighty six, but yes. probably ninety, maybe ninety in Norway. Yeah, well, not, <laughs> not, not nothing against Norway. No, <laughs> just it's probably when it happened. Yeah, yeah. it might be. So, um, but this isn't uh, the new book. Book isn't a novel. It's a, that's right. It's a kind of a big short stories for big yeah, short stories. Yeah, four long stories set in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy uh, in 2012. Um, I don't usually write about current events, but it, because usually current events stay in the realm of of, of media, of the TV and of newspapers and um, and. And, 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 it's, and current events are so much about information, and novels are so much not about information. Usually, the, usually these things, current events have to kind of sag away from me in some way until there can be a space open that an act of imagination can take its place. But um, we, went, we, we went down to New Jersey and visited the aftermath scenes of Hurricane Sandy. We were very moved by them. And uh, we had been in, worked in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, <coughs> where we, which is our home. And um, just driving away, I thought, wow, there, there, there probably are lots of effects that Hurricane Sandy has had on the lives of individuals that will never be in the media. That, that, that nobody will ever know about. So I thought, I'd like to write about that. I, I thought I could imagine what they might be. And when I thought that, I thought, well, this is Frank Bascom territory. Because he, he lives, he lived there, lives there in my brain. And he has the vocabulary and the moral interests and the sense of humor adequate, I thought, to portray this. 
so it sort of fell into my lap. Um, and, I, and I really thought that, that long stories would, would be simply easier than a novel. Mm. Uh, I wanted to get busy doing it right then, and I did get busy doing it right then. If, if I were going to write a novel, I would have to sit and think about it for a year. Mm. Whereas with these stories, I could space them out over a year and, and write them, mm. which is what I did do. Mm. Uh, Since uh, almost no one has... Uh, read the book yet was Christina satisfied with with yes, the book she was yes she was she was quite satisfied with mm. it uh, we we managed to work out a satisfactory feeling about both about the stories mm. so. <laughs> um, you left Jackson Mississippi you lived many places you've written yeah. books about many places i want to ask you about about roots do you ever take yourself um, or see yourself looking back in any kind of a sentimental way, or, or do you just go on? I don't think I look back at anything in in very sentimental ways. Um, I, I I'm, I'm I'm kind of as a as a human being dedicated to not letting the past have much effect on me. Um, Growing up, as I did in Mississippi, the past was kind of an enemy. Um, the past was r the Civil War and its aftermath, and it was on everybody's mind all the time. Racism was part of the past, um, all of the wrongs of racism. I, I, I grew up not wanting to be identified personally by the past. So I have tried to live as much, and we have tried to live as much close to the present as present as possible. And occasionally, I'll see a house where I lived, and it'll kind of make me feel something personal. Um, but I, 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 to me, the antidote for the past is, is not to forget it, but just to try to live as intensely in the present as... Um, as I can. Writing novels is actually very useful in that way because um, writing novels, if you will, get over the obsession with finishing them. Mm. If, you will, if you will dedicate yourself to writing them and being in the middle of them and doing all you can to make them better while you are there, it makes your present very intense. It makes, it makes your present very instructive. It makes it very satisfying. It, it makes it important. And uh, for, for me, that is, a, that is a good antidote to my sort of suspicions about the past. Mm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it seems as though you perceive details very clearly. Would that say that um, you remember details from your childhood, for example, very vividly? Or... Um, Yes. Is that kind of a closed chapter? No, I do. I, I, I sometimes say I have a, a memory instead of a brain. I, 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 I remember a, a scandalous amount of things. <laughs> I, and, and I don't think of them as the past. I think of them as being altogether in the present because I have uses for them in the present. But I, I have a, for some reason or other, uh, I have, a, a, and Christina will, will, will vouch for this, I have a, a remarkable memory. Mm. I can remember people's names. I can remember what people said in 1952. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I, can, I can remember how things smelled. I can, I, I can just 
and I was I was an only child, and I was alone a lot, and um, it, it just the the, the the world was just very interesting to me, mm. and stays stays that way. Mm. Yeah. So I do have a remarkable memory, mm. and it's not a burden. In no way is it a burden. In fact, it's extremely amusing. Mm. Um, Canada is, of course, no autobiographical novel. No one would suspect that. But your sense of detail and, and your, your, your great memory, how does it affect a novel in which um, the main character follows your lifespan uh, when it comes to, 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 to when he's born and, and uh, when he becomes 60, etc.? Well, my sense of the the detail in this book and in any other book that I write is 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 slightly different from most other people's who's remembering who are remembering something for me those details are words they are language and 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 and, and therefore i am i am mightily interested in them i just saw a quote from um, Wittgenstein the other day, which says, the world we live in are the words we use. And I, and I think that that's right. I mean, for me, those details, whether I remember them or whether I dream them up or never had happened, for me, they all turn out to be words. And those are words that I want to give to the reader and make us interesting, make us well-chosen, make as useful as possible. So I have a kind of a of, a, of an addiction to them, uh, which I probably wouldn't have to the memories or to the details themselves if they didn't come to me in language. <laughs> and you know, being dyslexic, there are a lot of bad qualities to being dyslexic, um, but one of the good qualities is that I read very slowly, and because I read very slowly, I am very fascinated by words. I fix on words. I have to fix on words or I won't read them right. So having that as my disability, writing novels turns out to be an almost natural consequence of the slowness with which I take language in. Mm. So when uh, Dell in the book uh, is forced to go to Canada, uh, uh, it's not... Um, he doesn't go to Alberta and he doesn't go to Manitoba, but he goes to Saskatchewan. Right. And that's the reason why the word is The better. word is Saskatchewan? Yeah. Well, it, it, I did like Saskatchewan. I, I, uh, I did like the word Saskatchewan. I, every time I saw it on the page, I was happy. Likewise with Canada, the word Canada itself. Every time I wrote it in a sentence, I was happy. Canada as, uh, is... For those prosodists in the audience, uh, Canada is a dactyl. It's a dactylic foot. Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And so whenever I hear that kind of little galloping, I like that. I like that. And I like those short A sounds, and I like those consonantal sounds. And so every time I put it on the page, I was glad. And, and, and so, um, you know, glad. I don't mean to say I was jumping up and down, uh, but I was glad on a low level of sensation. Uh, and, but I, um, yeah, I mean, Saskatchewan was close, but I could have also, as you, as you point out, I could have chosen Alberta. But seeing Alberta on the page just didn't make any difference to me. <laughs> or Man Manitoba was too far, yeah. you know. So, yeah. 
Is this the reason why you sometimes make up uh, names of towns because they sound too boring? In yes. Origin? Yeah. Yeah. It is exactly why Port Reeve. Uh, yeah. 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 I just like certain words. Uh, and I, in, in my notebook, which I don't guess I have with me, I'm always afraid of losing it. Um, I, I write just write words down. And I see words, and I want to stick them in sentences, and I want them to show up in the in the stories because I think you know. In, uh, I I I said that uh, literature refers you back to life and affirms its importance. Literature also refers you back to words, which we use all the time, quite reflexively, on without much intellection going on. We just use them. You know, how many times has somebody said to me when I said thank you? They said no problem. I thought, well, there was never a problem. <laughs> can't you just say something else? In other words, can't you take dominion over the words that you actually use? So, so I'm, I'm interested in the way in which language comes to us artistically and asks us to pay attention to it, and in the process of doing that, asks us to take responsibility for our, our own utterances. Yeah, so there's actually such an output of it, too. Yeah, I think there is. For every novel, not just mine, for everybody's novel. Um, and when I, read, when I read novels, and I think that people are not superintending their sentences very well, I just throw it across the room. Mm. You know, I think, no, don't, don't treat me to this. Treat me to something better than this. Mm. Um, Absalom, Absalom. Mm. What did it mean to you to, to read that book? Well, Absalom, Absalom is, is Faulkner's greatest novel, um, much better than Ulysses, um, even though I noticed today that the modern library in the United States had, had named Ulysses as the greatest novel of the 20th century, which it is not. <laughs> you could have used a good editor. <laughs> well, first of all, Absalom, Absalom was about Mississippi, and it took head on the very issues that nobody was taking head on at the time I was growing up there, which is to say race and the burden of history, which race personifies in essence. And it was also braided, that if you, go, if you read Absalom, Absalom, it's a very dense book, it's a very thick book, uh, it has many typefaces, has uh, several of, uh, uh, authorial um, presences, rather several narrative presences. Um, it, it, it interleaves history. What I realized was that a novel was this immense thing which you could go into and would change your life for the period that you were in it. And I just saw the potential in Absalom Absalom for, for great writing. And it, was, and it made a difference to me because it was about where I was from by a man who lived, you know, in my state. And uh, so um, I, I had grown up in Mississippi uh, as a young teenager um, feeling what a lot of young teenagers feel, which is that life isn't really very interesting. Um, kind of looking around and wondering if this is all that this is all going to turn out to be. And then I read Absalom, Absalom, which was about life. And I've, I've said, I've written this before, but, he, but, but uh, the novel provided an extra beat to life. 
it just kind of said, if life will take you this far, literature will then go boom. And, and I thought, wow, that's amazing. Because that, it, it not only corroborates and confirms life, but it adds something to it, adds something to the lived part. And it did all those things that we've been talking about. It, uh, it made me interested in language. It made me interested in life all over again by adding that extra beat to life. So that goes both for the reading and for the writing. Yeah, it does, in fact. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. So that's why you continue. Well, you know, there's a... There, there, there is a kind of a feeling which is self-delusional, I, I, I suppose, um, which is that uh, everything is preliminary to the thing you're doing now. And um, that may not turn out ultimately to be true, but there is that feeling that you have. And, and that sense of preliminariness is all about trying to get better. You, you, you really do, as a writer, with each new book that you undertake, think to yourself, I, I, I would like to be better. Not in a way that casts a shadow on the book that you just finished or the best book that you'd written to date. Not that way at all, because books, books don't have to be comparatively good. Books just have to be good. They don't have to be better than something else or less good than something else. Many are, but, what they, but the good ones just have to be good. So I think to myself, I, I would like to be good in a way I haven't been good before because I've done these things up to now and I've spent this time and I've, 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 I've learned how to do this. I'd like to, be, I'd like to be good at it again. So that creates a sense that, of possibility for yourself. Um, I, I, the only thing is that I would like not to have the world tell me that it's time to quit. I would like to have me tell me that it's time to quit and to know that it's time to quit. Because we all know writers who write too long and too much and they go along past their abilities to be. Who are you thinking of? I didn't have anybody in, my, in, in mind. I didn't have anybody in mind. Uh, not anybody at all. I mean, probably lots of people. Who were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was actually thinking about people who who, who make a point of of, uh, of stopping. We were talking about like Philip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, but 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 Philip said in a book we talking about Philip Roth, um, who says now that he stopped writing. But he said it. He said an amazing thing. He said before he announced that he was going to stop writing, he said that he went back through and read all of his books again. And I thought to myself, no, you did not. <laughs> you did not do that. Nobody could do that, because he's written a hell of a lot of books. Nobody would have the patience to sit down and read those books from the 70s. I mean, I would be willing to read them, but he wouldn't do that. So it made me doubt that he was telling the truth about the other thing, too. Yeah, it sounded very strange. I read the same thing. And he's written 40 books, maybe, I don't know, maybe yeah. more. Um, and it, it sounds a little like, well, the world says I'm a genius. I have to check. Well, I was. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Nobody would do that. A poet might do that. But a novelist, no, there's just too many pages. Too, too, too many words, you know. No, not, he didn't do that. 
I would tell him that too if he were sitting here. <laughs> well, for the record, the world says you shouldn't quit. The reviewers say you, you shouldn't quit, and, and the, the readers say you shouldn't quit. Um, what is your measure of having succeeded with a novel? That I can get a reader to read all the way through to the end. That's my measure. That's my only measure of success. Mm. If, I can, if I can induce you to read it all, um, then you can think about it what you will. Um, not that I'm indifferent if you don't like it. I am not indifferent if you don't like it. But you haven't disliked it so much that you didn't finish it. So I think that's all I ask. Just let me, let me do for you what I want to try to do for you or to you or with you. And, and if you go along with it, well, then I'm satisfied. Yeah. Because I know I've tried my best. I don't hold back anything. So, um, you know. And, 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 and a lot of times, we all know this. This is one of the reasons I don't ever review books. A lot of times you'll read a book and you won't like it. And then five years later, you'll be, find yourself thinking about that book again. And you'll realize that there was something in it that you weren't smart enough or old enough or in the right frame of mind to appreciate when you read it the first time. And you'll think to yourself, well, I, you know, that book is better than I, better than I thought it was. Um, if you review books, then you've already said the book is no good and you've made a lifelong enemy out of the, the author and... You've driven readers away from the book and done all those irreparable things, which I think writers have no business doing to their colleagues anyway. And um, so I, I, you know, I, I just think, think of my book as you will if you read it all. Maybe it'll stick around with you and be useful to you sometime. I mean, my, my notion of books is that they are, in the sense that Walter Benjamin writes about, useful in all of the ways that we've said. <laughs> Richard Ford, Hans Olaf Bremer, Christina Ford.